Hey, y'all. LeVar here. It has indeed been a while. And I'm very happy to get back in the saddle with the podcast. Needless to say, it's been an eventful couple of months here and pretty intense as well. I must say I really did enjoy doing my live Twitter readings back at the beginning of all of this. And interestingly enough, because I make my living on the road and travel so much, being home for this protracted period of time has been a real adjustment for me um, and my family. And I kind of like the way I've slowed down. In fact, no, I'm certain that I've liked the way I've slowed down. And it'll be interesting to see. I'm kind of looking forward to when I get back out there in the world doing it at a different pace. I tend to live my life like someone's chasing me, and I have a feeling that those days may, in fact, be over. We shall see. In any case, here's what I've come to tell you. Season 7 begins Tuesday, August 11th. Woohoo! <laughs> and as always, I am excited to share new stories with you, but this has been kind of a unique opportunity for me because I'm going to read you some stories from authors that you've heard before, like Amel El-Maktar, who wrote The Truth About Owls. And as always, I'm scoping out authors that are brand new, but coming in hot, as the kids say these days. And while you wait, I wanted to share something else with you. I know that you know the author James McBride, because he wrote the story Goat, which definitely blew my mind, and I heard that a lot of you had a similar experience. Well, James recently published a brand new novel called Deacon King Kong, and that book this summer has gone straight up the charts and was picked for Oprah's Summer Book Club. Now, I recently had the opportunity to sit down with James on his virtual book tour for a conversation. This stop was presented by two local bookstores here in Los Angeles, um, Pages in Manhattan Beach, and Essawan Books in Lamert Park, a neighborhood here in L.A. And I'm very grateful that they brought James and me together for the conversation you were about to hear. Now, if you don't have your copy of Deacon King Kong just yet, might I suggest ordering it online from either of these fine booksellers? The novel begins in Brooklyn, in 1969, in the Cause Houses Housing Project. And it follows the sequence of events after the eponymous drunk deacon of the title, uh, deacon at the Five Inns Baptist Church, shoots a drug dealer. Now, in most authors' hands, what follows would tend towards the serious, dramatic, and sad. However, James McBride is not that kind of writer, and this is definitely a novel that is uplifting and full of the warmth that humanity can be. I genuinely hope you enjoy my conversation with James. I know I did, and I am very much looking forward to reading to you, starting August 11th. I, I'm, I say about Deacon King Kong that I read this book with a continuous smile plastered on my face. Um, 
And it's because of the masterful storytelling that James brings to the page. I genuinely believe this man is, is, is an American master of arts and letters. He is the best of the best that's out there doing what it is he does. Um, so uh, hopefully there are a lot of you who have had an opportunity to read Deacon King Kong um, because a lot of the conversation, or at least the beginning of this conversation, will, hope, will center around the novel. James, how do you feel? Well, thank you for that extraordinary introduction. I, everything from there is going to be uphill, but let's, <laughs> let us proceed. <laughs> well, well let's, let's begin with, um, with Five Ends, the church that, that is featured in, in the novel. And I've got to believe that, that there is a lot of similarity, at least some similarity between uh, New Brown Memorial, the church that, that your family founded, and, and, and five ends, yes? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it takes place at a different time, but there, yeah, there are a lot of similarities. I mean, there's a lot of inside stuff that takes place that happens at a church. Right. That unless you go to church, um, you, you would not know. I mean, a lot of stuff that you were laughing at was stuff that you experienced yourself yeah. growing up in church, I'm sure. Uh, you know, look, bad rice and beans in church will make you many an enemy. So you got to, you know, you got to get the cuisine right and you have mm-hmm. to, you have to, you have to let everyone have their pride and no matter how, how foolish or how much you disagree with them. And then the amount of love that exists in a small church. Yeah. And the, the, the loving way in which you depict the church sisters is just extraordinary because as with all of your characters, I really feel like I know who they are. Right. Um, they resemble aunts and uncles, my grandparents. I mean, these are real people that you are sharing with us. Well, you know, one of the misconceptions about African-American life is that, you know, these characters that you and I may have grown up with, that you and I grew up with, are, are, are sort of stereotypically presented in, in, in novels and in films and in TV um, as like, you know, hip shaking mamas who walk around with wigs and doing, you know, ridiculous, making ridiculous statements that begin with fool. What are you talking about? I mean, that's really, you know, it's really not that way. Um, there's a gentleness to, um, African-American life that is rarely, uh, visited in, novels and in, in, in storytelling, in part because the suffering is so great and the instinct is for the writer to move to the suffering. Mm-hmm. But in church, their job is, you know, and is to put the spirit in your heart so that you realize today's suffering doesn't really count. Right. And so when you remove that, then you just have the person, and the person is usually even people who you don't like politically or socially, and that could be quite a, a lot, you know, of people that you, you trust because you've made this bond to sort of just let yourself go for an hour, or in my case, you know, three hours in my church because the ministry. <laughs> but is that how long church is at, 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 at New Brown? It goes quite a while. I, I you know, I, you know, um, I'm going there Sunday. It, 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 it can be a while because the, the pastor's feeling it. it, it look, the, the ones who have the calling, 
right. are dangerous. I mean, because they can be really good or they can preach the same sermon and then stretch it out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother's favorite minister, he would, everything, he st- everything he'd read from the Bible, then he'd say, you know, when I was a boy growing up back in Virginia, and, you know, he would just go, he would, and sometimes it was really good, but sometimes, you know, it wasn't, but it was always sincere. Mm-hmm. And, and in a strange way, always fulfilling because he was giving you heart. That's, that's the job. Mm-hmm. Heart. Right. That is the job. Does, do you think that the, the, the America of, of this neighborhood, Red Hook, um, in, in the book and, and, and the, the, the cause houses uh, and, and this sort of um, this melange of, of black and Puerto Rican and Italian. And d- does that does, does that America exist anymore, James, where, where people were forced by geography to be in close proximity to one another and that even even in the midst of great differences in culture and, 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 and point of view and, and priorities, there was a sense of community. Probably, I mean, it doesn't exist now nearly the way it existed when, when you and I were in our teens and 20s. Right. You know, technology has changed an enormous amount of that. And also just, you know, societal and sociopolitical problems have created differences, vast differences between us, many of them promoted by the current occupant of the White House, but also we don't really know. There are neighborhoods like in Queens, certain parts of Brooklyn. I can only talk about New York because that's the place I know. And parts of Philly where that, that still goes on. Um, I, I suspect there, and it's, but the melange is, is a little deeper. You know, it's a little deeper now. It's not just it's, blacks and it's blacks, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Ecuadorians, right? Guadalupe and, and, um, uh, you know, Ecuador and so forth. A lot of Caribbean um, nations represented and, you know, India and Asia. I mean, uh, there, there are so many more uh, cultures that are a part of this American experience. Well, if you go to Queens, um, you'll find, you know, people from uh, uh, from all parts of the, the quote unquote Indian world mm-hmm. who have absorbed all aspects of American life. And, you know, when you get really hit into it, you realize that they too have their own differences, even within their own, um, within their own, you know, quote unquote ethnic group, whatever that amorphous word means. Mm -hmm. But one of the really nice things about this, this country is that we, we have this great melting pot and it's nice that we are now moving to the point where we can actually sort of, at least a few of us, some of us, large numbers of us, more than you and I have ever seen, mm. are starting to dismantle some of these aspects of American history to allow us to see the treasures that lie beneath. Um, and that's really what, you know, in some ways, Deacon King Kong is about. I mean, mm. you know, strong Irish-American characters, a cop who's a good guy, you know, and looking for love and finds it in a black church. I mean, it's not, it's not, that's not that unusual. People find love wherever it's at. Yes. Um, so uh, the sum of your life is what you pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And I pay attention to people learning how to get along. And it, it helps my work. Right. Do you believe in miracles? 
Well, if you're a Christian, you better. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, man goes, he goes, he goes, takes the big sleep, and then wakes up three days later. You better believe in miracles, because <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen every day. No. <laughs> 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 there, there is a there's a line in the book that is uh, spoken by I believe she is the oldest character. She's 104, um, and she says about blessings that a blessing favors them that needs it. Don't matter how it comes, it just matters that it does. That's deep. Well, you know, um, you know, one of the favorite expressions of these preachers in church. And I don't agree with a lot of them, but one of the favorite ones they use is he's never there when you want him, but he's always right on time. Yeah. I could see the first, if I said the first part of that, you would be able to say the second part. <laughs> it, was, it was one of the things that Alex Haley said to me more often than, than almost any other. God may not always come when you call him, but he's always on time. Yeah. Well, there it is. I mean, uh, I think part of life as an artist and, and as a human being is that is that you learn that suffering is part of the struggle mm-hmm. that you you learn to embrace and not let it get you down so much because it's 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 a universal struggle. Right. Everybody wants to be happy. Right. So you know why make trouble behind it? Just make room. There's room at the table for everybody. Right. So I guess in writing this book, and I can't remember how it came out. I mean. You know, I guess because I'm involved in the church, you know, and have a little music program there and so forth. Um, I was seeing aspects of that life that I had never really appreciated before. Mm. I mean, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about your mother with the kind of appreciation and love that is shows you understand her journey now probably better than you ever did when you were nine or ten years old. Without question. Without question. And, you know her suffering and struggle to get, you know, to move to get from the Midwest to Sacramento, you know, it's, that's not an easy trip. And you, that you're not jumping on a discount airline with your stuff in a paper bag. You, you know, you're driving, you're sitting on the bus, you're getting there. There's nothing to catch. There's no safety net other than God, really. That's right. And, um, and you just keep forging ahead. You don't have time to look sideways. And in the book, you know, most of those characters, most of those people don't have time to look sideways, no matter what color they are. They are busy in getting everybody, on with they're life. Like, pardon me? They're busy getting on with the business of life. Yeah, the business of life. The business of life is, is uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's the only business there is. Exactly. Exactly. Do you, are you surprised at where we are as a nation right now? Um, in any way. I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement and this this new moment that we find ourselves in, I personally did not see this coming. Um, no, neither did I. I accepted a lot of things about this country as its flaws, and I love the country anyway. So I ne- it never really bothered me, for example, seeing these Confederate statues, because I, I just never even thought about it. Well, you know, you're in Richmond, they have these giant statues, and at the end of the the statue row, there's a little bust of Arthur Ashe, and you say, "Well, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, it, you don't get the whole cake, but you know, you just lick the piece that you like." And you, so I, I never really expected the country to move in this direction. On the other hand, I was always cognizant that 
in New York, where I grew up, the deepest and most deeply ingrained racism existed. And that there was almost nothing that you could really do about it. And um, it, it says everything that, you know, the person who's just beaten the race thing to death comes from Queens, New York, right. because that really speaks to how, how this problem was so much part of our consciousness that we didn't even, we didn't do enough uh, as a society. So I'm, 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 I'm proud of these young people for what they're doing. I think I can't, I can't express how proud I am of these people. And I don't care what color they are. I, they are arcing out a life for themselves of goodness and justice and peace that will make them better people. And you purpose. can't say that about the other side. Pardon me? And purpose. They have purpose. Well, anyone who has purpose, you know, I used to say, I used to believe, and I still believe that young people have to, should after college spend a year of doing community service somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that's really what these young people are doing. Mm-hmm. They're forced to do the kind of community service that our generation either did not do or did not finish. Right. And for that, it makes them extremely special people and privileged people to some degree, despite the fact that we've left them a, you know, a heaping pile of trash to, to sort through. A real dumpster fire. Of a world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Seriously. And I, and, I, I, and I talk to this generation a lot and, and, and I tell them that you are going to need everything that you have, all of your faculties, all of your talents to tackle and solve these problems. And so it's one of the reasons why I'm trying to keep them connected to their imaginations through literature, because everything in this world began with a thought. And, and one of the reasons why I love fiction and most particularly science fiction so much is because it invites us into the what if, two of the most important words in language in combination, what if. And if we can keep these young people connected to their imaginations, then they will have the facility to apply to the, the dumpster fire of problems that we are leaving in their lap. Well, that's a very good point, and I, I, you know, I admire you for 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 saying it so succinctly and so clearly because um, you are only limited by your imagination. Yes. And the moment you pick up a cell phone and play a, a video game, you know, it's like you're smoking a cigarette. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you're smoking ten cigarettes in terms of your imagination being fresh and true and clear. Mm-hmm. Um, freedom lies in the in the closest bookstore or library wherever you may be. Because if you can imagine it, if you can see it, it's like music. If you can sing it, then you can play it. But if you can't sing it, you can't play it. I mean, you have to be able to sing it in your mind harmonically. Like it goes like, okay, I'm going from here. And if you can't envision that or hear it in your ears, you can't make it happen. So in terms of ideas, how, you can't create story structure. I mean, one of the thing, great things about Alex Haley was that Alex Haley understood storytelling he understood story structure. Mm-hmm. You now he placed these people, these characters in this book, and he, he really, in many ways, re- rewrote the genre of nonfiction when he put Roots together. Because Roots read and still reads very much like a novel. And he did this before computers or anything. Right. He did this on a typewriter and he worked it out. Yes, he did. But um, 
And then, and some of the other great, you know, uh, nonfiction writers, Richard Ben Kramer comes to mind. He passed away. Gary Smith, who, who wrote for Sports Illustrated for years. Michael Herr, who wrote Dispatches about the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Some of these people really, Mary McCarthy, who wrote Stones of Florence. Some of these people really understood how to create. They understood how to open their hearts to the world and allow their imaginations to, to, to roam just enough so that they could couch this nonfiction into a narrative that worked. Fiction writers, on the other hand, are not stuck with that, that paradigm. Mm-hmm. They are only limited by their imagination. And so it's, a, it's an even playing turf for uh, all fiction writers. Mm-hmm. And then it goes into how much imagination do you have? Well, if you don't read books, and you, you're going to be stuck. You know, you'll be stuck with Star Wars. Nothing wrong with Star Wars. It's great. Well, why don't you create your Star Wars? That's, you know, that's really where your, your, your reading comes in. Amen. Amen. Let's talk about this, the, 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 the amazing imaginative work that you put in, in Deacon King Kong. What was the trigger? What possessed you to base part of the story on this painting, uh, The Judgment. And where did that idea come from? Because it it plays very prominently in the novel, the painting that's on the backside of this church and, and, and where it fits into the plot is brilliant. It's brilliant. And And the payoff is so satisfying. Well, you know, a book, a long novel or a big novel tends to sag in the middle because the reader, you know, at some point the reader stops, the reader can tend to stop caring. They want to know like, you know, is he going to die or does he, does he meet, does she meet the prince at the end? Or, and um, I needed something to engage a very important character who's uh, Thomas Elefante, the, the Italian uh, uh, gangster, if you will, or he's a smuggler. Uh, in a way that would allow the reader to see his his goodness and to see his history so we don't just see him as just a gangster. And, you know, when you're talking about Italian gangsters, if you're a writer, you're running up against Mario Puzo, which that's, you don't want to do that. I mean, it's like me, you know, lining up opposite the Dallas Cowboys. Not that I know football, but, I, you know, I wouldn't want to be, you know, running up against one of those because you don't, you don't want to do that. You want to no. skirt around it. So I needed something to to push to push him into into activity and also to um involve a kind of treasure hunt that gave the book a different spin uh, it gave the book some 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 levity in the middle that would would create this wide oxen that I could bring it together at the end i really didn't know how it was going to end but i knew that the, you know that i needed a piece of i needed some i needed something big Mm-hmm. And and I needed something miraculous to take place that was yet believable. Yeah, and that's really what that. And that the painting by Giotto, the 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 Last Judgment, is just a painting I like. I don't even know art, you know. I mean, I, you know, I, I I mean, I like that. I have a friend who's a sculptor, and he he does like abstract stuff, and he turned me on the Giotto, and I just really I love the painting. I love his work, you know. Yeah. So. It's a, it's a great, it's a brilliant, brilliant device. It really keeps the story alive and moves it forward. And you've got so many threads 
so many characters and so many stories and multi-generational stories that are, are, are woven in, 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 in this tapestry. It's, it's, uh, it's a great read. And, and like I say, I, I just, I grinned the entire time. <laughs> well, that's because you're seeing your own history in there too. <laughs> I mean, how many of us, you know, have an uncle who shows up at Christmas and takes out his teeth and goes, you know, and then sticks them in his mouth, you know? I mean, we all have crazy relatives and the right. central character in this book is a pretty crazy guy. Um, uh, he's a deacon who gets drunk and, you know, and goes out and shoots the, the neighborhood drug dealer and, you know, and then that's, that sets the story off. Um, but it, what, what, what I try to do in this book and when, in all my books is to give people the idea that folks really who, who, who they might not know are not, are just like them, and we all need to leave room to say that, wow, I didn't know, or I'm sorry, or I made a mistake, or, well, yeah, I'm like that too, or I have a brother, or sister, or husband who's like that. So, and you want to bring joy to people. Yeah. You don't want to make people, I mean, who wants to read a book that says, you know, take your medicine, you know? I don't, you know. I think the thing about your writing that I, I, I enjoy most is your ability to bring humanity to the characters that you create. And that is really true in this novel. Um, and, and in that humanity, you're absolutely right. We are able to see ourselves. And the idea that we are more alike than we are not alike is really true about this existence. If we could only just recognize well, I think fiction. I think fiction lets you do that. Yeah. I mean, fiction. You know, when I read the Human Comedy by William Saroin when I was a little boy, I didn't know anything about California. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm reading it in the project somewhere. You know, in Brooklyn. You know, I didn't know, but I still related yes. to. Uh, I think it was the Human Comedy. I'm almost sure it was. Um, it's just. It, it was just an. You know. And he was, and he wasn't even, I mean, he was like Ar- Ar- Armenian or something. I mean, it didn't matter. The story's the same. The emotions are the same. That's what really powers writing. You know, the, the, the sameness of us all. Yes. When you, when you try to show how unique your characters are, you, you're done. <laughs> all of the characters, well, most of the characters in, in this story have, Wacky nicknames like Sport Code and Hot Sausage. What was your nickname as a kid? I had a couple. One was um, uh, Cochise when I was little. I have no idea. That was just one of those Fresh Air Fun Camp names. Okay, Cochise. And then um, in college, they called me Brittles. And then when I became a full-time musician, they called me Cuddy. Cuddy? C-U-D-D-Y, yeah. That was a nickname I got from a, a singer named Rochelle Farrell that I, I used to use. Love to, Rochelle Farrell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Boy, she, her, her voice is off the chain. Oh, she's 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 the best. Why she call you Cuddy? I don't I think I think it was, you know, it was a, a, it was like a, a um in term of endearment for cousin. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. And then uh you know, she introduced me to some players from Berkeley where she went, and they all 
started calling me Cuddy. There's some still call me Cuddy, and some people from college still call me Brittles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, at least they don't call me Donkey. You know, <laughs> horse. You know? <laughs> oh. James McBride, y'all. His work is indeed a gift to us all. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. But you don't have to take my word.